We have been given a mission by Jesus Christ. We call it the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the triune God and teaching them to observe everything that God, that, that Christ has commanded to us. This morning we'll be looking at Nehemiah chapters 3 and 4. So let me invite you to turn in your Bible there because it's not so important what I have to say but what God's Word has to say. So you need to test what I have to say against what the Scripture says. Hold fast to what is good and, and, um, and leave the rest. So we've been giving a, given a task, a co- commission, a mission by Christ. And it is the primary task of our church. And this task cannot happen through the effort of one man or one woman who wants to fulfill God's will of making disciples, baptizing, and teaching them. It happens instead through a whole body of believers who desire to obey God with a concerted, unified effort moving in one direction toward this common goal. And the ultimate reason for our pursuit of this goal to accomplish Christ's task for us is God's glory and our good. There's nothing better for us as believers to work toward. We want to see God glorified through His Son. But as we'll see this morning, the work that God calls us to do is often met with opposition. And so the question that we want to answer uh, as we study these two chapters is, how can God's work be done by God's people in the midst of opposition or persecution? How can God's work be done by God's people? So, I'm not going to read all of chapter 3. I'll just read the first two verses, and then we'll skip down and read all of chapter 4. So, let's start with Nehemiah chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. Next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. And then skip down to chapter 4, verse 1. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Hear, O God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads, and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, 
And because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus, in Judah, it was said, The strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said, They will not know or see until we come among them. Kill them and put a stop to the work. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, They will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places. And I stationed the people in the families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At, what time, at, at that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon even to the water. Despite necessary conflict, we must do the work of God with the people of God according to the strength that comes from God. We are going to experience necessary conflict when we seek to do the work of God. But we must hold together with the people of God and do it according to the strength that God supplies. In chapter 3, we see that the work of God demands the unified effort of the people of God. So we're trying to answer the question, how can God's work be done by God's people? Number one, the work of God demands the unified effort of the people of God. Chapter 3 is just a record of the unified rebuilding project that is taken up by the Jews on the walls of Jerusalem. The, 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 the temple has been restored by this point uh, through the leadership of Zerubbabel and Ezra. And now Nehemiah comes back from Babylon to Jerusalem to make sure that the walls are rebuilt because a city without walls is defenseless and people could come in, enemies could come in and destroy the temple and take all of the treasures from it. And so Nehemiah is confident that God wants him to do this. And this chapter, chapter 3, begins with the high priest and his family and tells us about how they get to work on the northern part of the gate. Uh, there's ten gates around the city, and there's 45 sections that Nehemiah lists in chapter 3. We're not going to go through all of them, but what you should notice is that, that he basically goes around the city in counterclockwise motion from the north part where the priests were working, and then he just takes it section by section all the way till he gets back up to the top. And 
we have this chapter in our Bible because God here, I think, for us is commending the work of these Jews by name who took part in this extreme makeover Jerusalem wall edition, right? And this could not have happened apart from God's strength, as we're going to see in chapter 4. God was the one who had to supply the strength for them, especially concerning the opposition that they're going to receive. This also could not have happened apart from Nehemiah's prayer, as we saw in chapters 1 and 2. He's the one who, who went to God and said, God, please don't allow your city to be destroyed. This also couldn't, could not have happened without the willingness of the people to sacrifice their own well-being and family income, as we'll see next week in chapter 5, because there are some significant consequences when men are taken away from their families, left inside of the city to take care of this wall. Now their families are left on their own um, to take care of themselves, and there's going to be some significant consequences as a result. And then this also could not have happened apart from Nehemiah's organization. Nehemiah works, sets up these people, says, okay, this is your section. You and your family, you work on this section. And he, he, he breaks it up into 45 sections and 10 gates. And they needed to be either made from scratch, these walls or gates, or they had to be rebuilt. They were uh, broken down. In addition to reassign, or assigning, I should say, sections to each group, Nehemiah had to make sure that everyone had enough materials to do the work that they were being asked to do. So he had to coordinate uh, materials to come in, usually from outside of Jerusalem, to the, the place where the people were working. So, number one, the work of God demands the unified effort of the people of God. Number two, the work of God is often opposed by the enemies of God. Or we could say the work of God is necessarily opposed by the enemies of God. And we see this in chapter 4. First, we see external opposition. When we come to make a decision to do the work of God, we should not be surprised when we are opposed by enemies from outside of us. The real test of people who are committed to do God's work is how they respond when crisis and opposition And here, in chapter 4, we find three agents of opposition to the people who are working for the sake of God. We know that what we're doing is a good work. We're rebuilding these walls for the sake of God and His glory. And yet, they're going to be opposed from at least three external forces. First, Sanballat in verses 1 and 2. This opposition to Israel is not new. We, We... This is not the first time we've seen this. We saw it in Ezra chapter 4. From the time that Israel made its way back from Babylon to Jerusalem, they received opposition. People are sending letters to the king. This cannot be happening. um, They are being subversive. They don't want to follow the king's authority. They're trying to, to, uh, to be rebellious against him. And so this opposition is not... New And upon Nehemiah's arrival with the armed guard of the Persian king, Nehemiah is met with opposition by Sanballat and Tobiah before he even tells them what he's coming to do. And so this is not new. But in chapter 4, we see it again. That Nehemiah and the Jews are ready to work, and yet Sanballat is, is there to oppose them. Now, despite this initial opposition that Nehemiah has when he first arrives into the city, this is much later, when he first arrives into the city, he and the Jews are not deterred from doing the work. 
And yet what they're going to find is that opposition is going to intensify. Has that ever happened to you in your Christian life? That you knew precisely what God desired and demanded of you, and you started working toward obeying Him, and then you were met with opposition. But you kind of expected it. Opposition comes when we try to do the will of God. And so you kept right on pursuing holiness or purging that sin or showing love to to a believer that was unlovely. But then, even as you determine, resolve to continue despite the opposition, the opposition grew fiercer. It grew worse. Has that ever happened to you? And, and I can say to you that your dependence on God during those times of increased opposition is the only way that you will continue. Notice the method of Sambalat's attack on Israel here in verses 1 and 2. It is psychological warfare. He makes four claims about Israel, Israel in the form of mocking questions. Verse 1, uh, at the end of the verse says, He became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. Well, how did he mock them? Well, it comes in the form of four questions, well, four statements effectively. Um, he does it in the form of questions, however. So he says in verse 2, what are these feeble Jews doing? The first mockery is the Jews are too weak. The first statement effectively that he's making is the Jews are too weak. They can't do this. They're not going to be able to accomplish this. He later says, can they finish in a day? I mean, why even start the project? You're going to fail. Secondly, the second claim that he makes against them is that they are fools. The second question that he asks is, are they going to restore it for themselves? The implied answer is, no, they're not. Never. They're wasting their time. They're going to put all this effort into rebuilding the walls and it's not going to be finished. They're fools. The third claim that he makes in the form of a question is that the Jews will not even be helped by God. Here, I think that's what he's asking when he says, can they offer sacrifices I think the idea is, can they offer enough sacrifices to compel their God to help them? I mean, certainly even God wouldn't help them. There's not enough sacrifices that would appease Him to to come to get Him to help them in this impossible effort. It's not going to happen. The fourth claim that they make against Him, or that Sam Ballot makes against them, is that the Jews can't reassemble pulverized stones. The last question there, can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble? Where are you going to get stones from? They're just destroyed. You can't bring them back to life. So your your whole effort here is a big waste of time. I think there's much application that we can get from that. Sometimes we set out to do the work of God as we know that God wants us to do, but then we have people from the outside, or sometimes even people close to us who are saying, can't do that. It's not going to work. It's a, it's a waste of time. Persecution also comes from Tobiah in verse 3. He makes fun of, of their work by saying, listen, if a fox came up and, and touched your wall, it would fall down. It's so weak. You can just hear the mockery in his statement. The third type of persecution comes from the surrounding nations in verses 7 and 8. Now in Sanballat, Tobiah, and then notice we add these other ones. The Arabs, Ammonites, Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went down and that the breaches began to be closed. They were very angry. So, as you can imagine, they're not going to just leave it at that. They are frustrated because this initial 
uh, tactic to stop them from the work didn't work, and so they increased in anger, and their plans to thwart Israel were going to be ramped up. And so Sam Ballot was not going to be left alone to oppose them. He, he enlisted the help of other opponents, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites. And notice what they do in verse 8. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance. It turned from a psychological warfare very quickly into a physical battle that they were planning. Apparently, they surrounded Jerusalem. Sanballat and his men come from Samaria, so it would make sense that they would probably come from the north, and they're at the north part of the walls. Tobiah leads the Ammonites from the east. The Geshem uh, leads the Arabs from the south, and then the Ashadites come from the southwest as the Phil- uh, one of the five Philistine cities. And you might be thinking that Nehemiah shouldn't be too afraid, right? Because, I mean, he, after all, he had a decree. A, he had an edict from the king, so why should he fear? But think about where Nehemiah is in relationship to the king. Right? Where is the Persian king at the time of this rebuilding? He's either in Babylon or somewhere in Persia. He's a thousand miles away or more. And if Nehemiah could talk to him via Skype or something, it would still take a few months for the king to send troops to enforce his decree. And so this opposition by Sambalat, Tobiah, and these other nations was a legitimate threat. His Security was far away from him. What do we do when the opposition mounts against us to do the work of God? Well, in this case, the people began to be uh, began to be discouraged. In verses ten through twelve, we see this internal discouragement or internal erosion of resolve. Like they, they at once were, yes, we're going to do this. We saw the initial opposition, persecution, but now they got swords. Okay, Should we really do this? Notice the source of their despair in the text, verse 10. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. There is much rubbish. We ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. They had failing energy, right? The, the strength of us is failing. We can't do this anymore. We have low inventory. See all this this rubbish? Everything is destroyed. We don't even have the materials we need. And then they were devastated because verse 11, they knew about this imminent attack. The enemy said, we're going to surprise them. We're going to surprise them with an attack on this city. We're going to destroy these walls that they've set up to rebuild. And in verse 12, there's a continual reminder of the threats by their own local Jews. Verse 12, When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. So we have no support from even our own people who live outside the city. They're saying, listen, you're not going to survive. You've got a serious attack that's coming. So morale was low. The task the task seemed impossible. It's, it first seemed doable. Like, we, we can do this. Right? It's just a few guys making some uh, jokes and cracks at us, but, but now it's serious. And so what is Israel to do? What is Nehemiah, their leader, supposed to do? Number three, the work of God must be done with the strength of God. The work of God must be done, done with the strength of God. Notice what Nehemiah does 
as the, the opposition grows fiercer. Verse 4, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. When opposition comes, we must, like Nehemiah, turn to God. This is so elementary, isn't it? But it's so critical and so easily forgettable, even for us who have been saved for decades. We can easily forget that in times of trouble, we need to turn to God. And yet, that's what David did in Psalm 56. Verses 3 and 4, he said, When I am afraid, I will what? I will trust in You. In God whose Word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid because what can mere man do to me? Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.10, For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God. When opposition comes, we must turn to God. In times of trouble, Nehemiah depends on God through prayer. Now, you might look at this prayer here in verses 4 and 5 and think, this is a little harsh. Look at verse 5. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out. Well, not a lot of love there between Nehemiah and his opponents. But let me just uh, give you some um, an explanation from one commentator named Mervyn Brenneman. He gives three thoughts regarding this imprecatory prayer. You're going to find these in the Psalms as well. That, that the, the prayer asks God to bring down judgment on his opponents. He argues, Brenneman does, Nehemiah knew that the rebuilding of the wall was the will of God. So the opposition to rebuilding the wall was opposition to God. When they were opposing Nehemiah, they were ultimately opposing whom? And Nehemiah recognized this. He knew that they were actually opposing God, and so he's asking God, God to do the work of judgment. And notice, Nehemiah's prayer was not for his own vindication, not so that it would be easier for him, but he was asking God to judge sin. And notice that he's not asking for permission to take out vengeance. He's not saying, God, can I be the judge? Because uh, he knew the principle that we learn in the New Testament, which is, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We don't take out vengeance ourselves. We leave that to God. This is what Nehemiah is doing in his prayers. Now, as Christians, uh, we are called to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Matthew 5.44 But at the same time, I don't think there's anything improper about praying to God that He would bring about justice to those who are unjust. I don't know that I would recommend uh, Nehemiah's prayer as such, but, but certainly it's not wrong to pray for God to bring about justice. So Nehemiah depends on God through prayer. But notice verse 9, what he does after he prays. But we prayed to our God, and because of them, the opponents, we set up a guard against them day and night. It is one thing to pray to God without acting. But it's a biblical thing to pray to God and to act. This is what Nehemiah does. He prays to God and he acts. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you have been giving in to the sin of unrighteous anger. That you have been shouting at your spouse and your kids because you're not getting your way. And this goes on for day after day after day. And it seems to be escalating over time. 
and your spouse approaches you on it. And when your spouse does, you acknowledge it to them and you acknowledge it to God as sin. And then you pray to God and say, God, please stop me from being angry. Please don't allow it to happen again tomorrow. And then tomorrow, you fly off the handle again because someone was taking too long in the bathroom or watching a show while you wanted to watch the hockey game. These are challenges that come up in some people's houses, okay? And you pray to God the next day, God, I'm waiting for you to stop me from being angry. You haven't stopped me yet. It happened again yesterday, so please stop me from doing it today. And I think if God spoke audibly in our day, I think He would say to us, get up off your knees and get, go back to your family and reconcile with them. Acknowledge your sin before them. Ask for forgiveness. And start taking steps to correct your anger. Do you remember the Battle of Jericho? If you do, you're really old because it was a long time ago. Okay? But, but in the Battle of Jericho, God said, don't take any spoils for yourself. They, they all belong to me. So they're all going to be a part of the tabernacle. And as far as Joshua knew, the people obeyed. But then they go to the next battle, the Battle of Ai. And 36 Jews died in that battle. And Joshua gets down on his knees and he says, God, why did we ever come here to die? Why did you send us across the Jordan to die at the hand of these enemies? How, God, is this going to be reconciled? What will you do for your great name? He prays. Do you remember how God responded? Get up, Joshua, and remove the sin from your camp. It's one thing to pray. It's a biblical thing to pray and act. Christian, are you struggling with some sin that is perpetually tempting you? Are you failing to pursue holiness? Maybe it's something that you have regularly prayed about and you can't seem to make any progress. Can I challenge you today? Get up off your knees and start making an effort to see change. Now, please don't misunderstand what God is teaching us here today. It's not that He wants us to be independent and stop asking. That's not the point. So if you hear me say, I don't need to pray, I just need to act, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Scriptures say. You need to do both. But I'm afraid what we often do is we uh, pass the blame to God and say, God, I've prayed about it. You haven't done anything. And we're sitting here the whole time continuing to be complicit with sin and expecting God to somehow magically zap us into conformance. And that's not how He works. He wants us to put feet to our prayers. Yes, pray. Pray without ceasing, Christian. Continually pray. But then get up off your knees and get to work. Get up off your knees and start purging that sin. Get up off your knees and start pursuing that holiness. When the Jews were afflicted, they prayed. And then they responded with action. Look at verse 9 again. Just kind of drive it home. But we prayed to our God, and because of the enemies, we set up a guard against them day and night. Both of these things are proper for the believer. Nehemiah is depending upon God. Israel is seeking to depend upon the strength that God supplies. Look at verse 14 because we'll see this again. When I saw their fear, that is the fear of the people after they see this terrible 
surprise attack that's going to come. When I saw the fear of the people, verse 14, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. And he said this, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. When Nehemiah saw the fear of the people, because of the mounting opposition, he encouraged them to remember that God was on their side. Remember what God can do when we trust in Him. So, the work of God demands the unified effort of the people of God. Chapter 3, the work of God is often opposed by the enemies of God. And then thirdly, the work of God must be done with the strength of God. And then finally, number four, the work of God requires resolve by the people of God. The work of God requires resolve by the people of God. In verse 6, we see that they are making some progress. So we built the wall and and the whole wall was joined together to half its height. So they're on their way. They fasten the wall together, build it to halfway up. Because the people, the end of verse 6 says, the people had a mind to work. That's the idea of resolve. That's where I get that from. They had a resolve. They had a desire. This, this makes sense. This is, this is something that we need to do. They need to be resolved also in protecting the work that they've already done. Verse 13. Nehemiah says, Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. So he's saying, you know, the, the worst, uh, the weakest spots of our walls, we need to make sure we have proper defense there. We don't want to give up what we've already worked to, to build. And then in verses 15 to 23, we see prevention of, of further attacks. Verses 15 to 23, remember they had heard about this surprise attack. It was supposed to be a surprise attack. And so their initial reaction was devastation and despair. We can't do this. Our strength is failing. But, but this is actually an advantage. They had learned the strategy of the enemy, and now they're ready for it, and their protection against surprise attacks actually serves to discourage the enemy from attacking at all. If we can't attack by means of a surprise attack, we're not going to attack. And notice who gets the credit. Verse 15, When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each to its own work. So now their despair turns back to resolve. Look at the end of verse 15 again. Then all of us returned to the wall. Remember what they were saying in verse 10? The strength of the burden bearers is failing. There's much rubbish. We're unable to rebuild the walls. Our local Jews in verse 12 are telling us, you can't do it, times 10. Telling us 10 times over, we can't do it. And now, verse 15, they're ready to get back to work. Nehemiah's strategy to, pre- to prevent further attack is found in verses 16 to 23. He organizes the workers in such a way that, according to verse 16, half of them worked while the other half were on guard. Now, this could be just half of all the people, or it could be just half of Nehemiah's personal guards. He, he may have just uh, repurposed them, half of them to guard the walls, and the other half to help in the work. But there were two kinds of workers. Verse 17, you have the grunt laborers. The grunt laborers are responsible to bring the materials to the craftsmen, so notice what they were supposed to do. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand, doing the work and and the other hand, the other hand, they used to hold a weapon. So, just imagine that the ones that can carry things, they don't need both hands necessarily. Maybe put it on their shoulder or, or their head, whatever the case. 
and the other hand they have their weapon ready to fight. But the craftsmen are a different kind of workers. They need both hands. Verse 18, as for the builders, the kind of the finished carpenters, each wore his sword girded at his side. So he wasn't able to have one hand to work and one hand to hold a weapon. Instead, he had both hands to work and he had a sword at his side. So he quickly dropped what he was doing to grab his sword if he needed to. This is Nehemiah's plan to protect the people and the walls from attack. In verses 19 and 20, he tells them what's going to happen if there ever is a breach. He had a plan for what would happen if they would be attacked. He's saying, listen, we don't have enough man, men to protect the wall at all times. And so what you're going to need to do is be ready to hear the trumpet. And that's what he says in verses 19 and 20. When you hear that trumpet sound, come to the sound of that trumpet because that means we need some help. And so they're ready for any attack that would come. He also, in verse 21, um, uh, let, let me skip back up to verse 20 because I don't want to miss this. Uh, at whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. And notice, our God will fight for us. Again, they knew that they were doing God's will. And so they were confident that God would fight for them. Not that God would fight instead of them, but really God would fight for them through them. That's the idea. Uh, the further prevention method was is found in verse 21. He separates them into shifts. So we carried down the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. And then the assumption is that the other half were working uh, in the evening or at least standing guard in the evening. And then verse 22, he also demands on-site living arrangements. What could happen if some of these builders or these laborers decided to go home at night. Well, they might not come back. It's just too much opposition. It's much more comfortable here. There's no opposition here at my home. And so it was kind of a twofold purpose so that they wouldn't run and leave, but also that they could stay and help defend the city. And then finally, verse 23, that the men always had to be on the alert, that they never took their weapons away from them. That wherever they went, they always had to have their weapons with them. So, Nehemiah recognizes that these people have to have resolve to do the work, to do the defense uh, that is necessary to keep the work from digressing. So, the question that we wanted to answer from the text this morning was, how can God's work be accomplished by God's people in the midst of fierce opposition? While the task for Israel is certainly different from the task that Christ has given us, I think the means to the end is the same. Right? Their task is to rebuild, rebuild a physical wall. Our task is to build an invisible church, effectively. That is, that is we, we are to make disciples. We're to see them mature, see, them, see believers baptized and then uh, trained in everything that God has commanded us, everything Christ has commanded us. So we have different tasks in that sense. But the, the means to the end is the same. We, we both, us and Nehemiah's people, we want to see God receive the honor that is due Him. And so we must work with one another by the strength that God has given us to do what He has called us to do. So what does that look like for our church? Nehemiah led the people to be people of both prayer and work. And I would suggest to you that that's how we're going to fulfill God's work, will through our church as well. We need to be people that depend on God through prayer 
and then put feet to our prayer. Recognizing that God answers prayers through means. God can be trusted and so we must depend on Him and then get to work. Let's pray. Lord, burn the truth of Your Word into our hearts so that we are confident and sure that all Your ways are right. Lord, You are the God who is over all and Your mercy is over all Your works. And we recognize that apart from You, we can do nothing. Unless You build the house, we labor in vain to build it. So Lord, help us not to be people who just work and who just exert a lot of effort towards spiritual things, but people who depend upon You through prayer and work. Sometimes the, the mentality for us is to just pray, just to ask for help, but then never do anything. And so we pray that You help us to understand and appreciate the right balance that there is uh, prescribed for us in Scripture between both praying and working. And Lord, we want to be people who are people of the book, and the people of prayer. And we want to be people who are not just of the book in the sense that we know it, but people who are doers of it. And so we actually put it into practice. Lord, give us specific ways today and this week in which we can start moving toward You. Help us to draw near to You so that You will draw near to us, we pray. Give us strength as a church as well to accomplish the task that we've been commanded to do by Jesus Christ Himself and, and from whom we've received all authority in heaven and in earth to, to go and make disciples of all nations. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.